0: We're talking here to Chance Sparks. Chance is with the, um, uh, I think it's called the, you're with, it's basically the planning group at Fries and Nichols, if I'm correct. Right, it's the urban planning and design group of Fries and Nichols. Urban planning and design group. Um, pre, in, previously to that, uh, Chance actually brought us on to work with the, the city of Buda. Um, which is, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a suburb of Austin, but it's a community that's that's about, I guess, 25 minutes away from Austin. Um, that we uh, we helped with some adaptive reuse strategies for some of the former government buildings. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to have Chance on is because he's got you know fantastic thoughts and ideas, um, and he's working on some really interesting projects. Um, but we also see that that Buda. Um, is doing a lot of really smart things. So, so and I, I know that he helped to, uh, to plant a lot of the seeds for that. They're, they're taking some, I think, fantastic steps to help to address um, some of the, the business losses and things like that that are, are coming from this crisis. So uh, Chance, I'm um, very curious to hear about the projects that you're working on and how you're thinking of that in light of the current crisis. And as we discussed in some private conversations, I know that a lot of the times, um, you know, the stuff that you're requ- suggesting to your clients or recommending that your clients do are really based on things that, that were already a good idea before this, but that, that are more essential than ever. Um, so, with that uh, chance, thank you for, for coming on and speaking with us.
1: Sure thing. I'm happy to be on here, and, uh, you know, it's it's definitely interesting times. I think when we first started talking about doing this podcast, the game plan was to to come up to Dallas and hang out for a little bit, uh, perhaps with, with a couple of adult beverages and do this. This is a much different format, uh, right. but uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about uh, what's going on in the planning world, kind of in this, you know, well, active COVID situation and what I think it's going to look like afterward. And kind of what I told you is, uh, is spoiler alert: uh, the things that were a good idea before are still good ideas. Um, so, in in planning, what we've always supposed to have been focused on, especially in the in the type of of work we do in smaller cities, is is that idea of economic resiliency, and and. So, and this is really coming to a, to a head right now during the crisis, where we're seeing downtowns where you know a third to half of their storefronts are now shut down uh, for the time being, and issues like that, and and looking at what does it mean to be a resilient community, what does it mean to be able to bounce back, um, and that type of thing, and you see that in a lot of a lot of my planning work, it, it focuses on. Uh, you know, kind of doing the small things and doing them right and doing them in series to, so that you build momentum uh, and also looking towards, you know, what, you know, instead of waiting for the savior on the white horse, you know, is there somebody in your city that maybe they don't have a white horse, but maybe they've got a white goat and, and they can, and they can come in and they can be that person. Um it, so, looking at issues like uh, like small and incremental development approaches, uh, small business development, and what does that mean? You know, what is what is it that really keeps people from from opening that, that small business, from acting on that dream that they scribble down at 2 a.m. Uh, you know, what's stopping them? And a lot of it's you know looking at how do you mitigate risk. And so you see that that show up in a lot of my work of you know what are the steps that cities can take that can help with that, that risk spectrum. There's obviously things that a city really can't deal with, you know, uh, you know challenges, uh, you know, when you ask somebody, why didn't you open that business? And they say, well, what am I gonna do about health benefits? That's not, not an issue that a city's gonna be able to easily resolve. Now, if the question is, you know, it, it takes my project a year to ramp up, and become profitable, so that's a huge risk. How can I help mitigate that risk? That's an interesting space where a city can start operating in, and and look at you know what are the things that they can do to help. Uh, this is a great task for something like an economic development corporation, where they can uh, you know build these businesses from scratch. And the great thing about a scratch-built business is that it is a loyal business. You know they remember who helped them, and so when they do get big. They don't go looking to move somewhere. They go looking for another space in the same place they are. Um, we saw that directly in Buda. There was a, a great business there called uh, Fat Quarter Shop, and it was uh, it made more or less quilting kits. It started in a garage uh they got some support from the from the economic development corporation early on they grew up they outgrew their garage they moved up into a next bigger space the next bigger space Uh, by the time i left there they had built i believe it was a 60,000 square foot uh processing facility uh and and were a major you know kind of international importer exporter of these quilting kits you know and I don't think they ever considered going anywhere else. I think they were—they saw, you know, the, the, that Buda had been there to help them, and that's the—the the ideas of economic resiliency kind of show up in that. Um, but you also see in like some of the local programs that have been put put forth uh, in the in the wake of the COVID crisis. You know, the thing that gets all the headlines is the Small Business Administration's uh, Payroll Protection uh, Program. Uh, which has its own its own set of issues. We can always talk about later on. I've got my my very strong opinions on it, but uh, but but you know, in the you know four to five weeks before that program even hit the ground, you had a huge number of cities and economic development corporations that were rolling out uh, really really simple programs that had huge impacts. They were uh, you know rolling out uh, generally structured as deferred forgivable loans. Uh, to To protect these businesses, help them you know pay their rent or pay the payment on their you know capital cost for whatever equipment is in their buildings and and things like that with the the promise that hey this doesn't come this you know stay in business for another five years, don't lay people off, and you know we'll we'll for actually forgive this. it becomes a grant. Um, i can't think of a better way probably to spend economic development dollars than on a business retention program like that, um, because you're you're creating this this loyalty there, and you're creating space for them to not only just survive, but when they get past the the initial issue, they can actually leverage that that deferred loan or, or grant to actually build their business to reinvest in it, and uh, that those types of programs, you know, <laughs> you can tell I get really excited about them. Yeah, she uh, should. Though. And uh, and that that's where I see some of the space going, but to Bring it back to my original point what i'm describing was a good idea before the covid situation yes. it remains a good idea um you know one of the things that that we usually caution about in our planning is you know yes you need to have big bold visions huge visions but but the, the next th- the next words out of your mouth after that better be something about implementation and how do you do it and that isn't to say that the biggest boldest vision can't be implemented is that you need to know how to tailor to the capacity of the community, the capacity of the city, the capacity of the staff, the financial capacity, because there are, you know, we, we sometimes talk about that there's, there's, a, there's the Toyota Corolla way to do things, there's the, the Lexus way to do things, there's the Aston Martin way to do things. They're all perfectly valid, they all can accomplish that vision, but you need to, to match it to the situation. Um, there's a there's a right tool in, in every case, and that's where uh, I think that's what that's really what differentiates a plan that sits on a shelf versus uh, one that ends up with worn out pages by the by the end of five years. I love that
0: line. I love that line. And you know, one of so one of the things I'll tell you from from the perspective of of our own business and and having done this for for six and a half years, um, and and kind of having to to talk about this, this is something that we go back and forth on. Um a lot of times it's it's hard for people to see that when you're talking about taking very modest steps that that's not like that that doesn't mean that you're you don't have really exceptional ambitions that the two are not the opposite, and that if you have exceptional ambitions um you you have to take modest steps toward it and it was funny because i I kind of used um what you might call a parable with someone who was. Um, I was trying to explain this to, you and I was like, okay, so somebody want, you know, you want to go get a, a an, you know, s- this is someone who had a master's degree, um, an MBA from Stanford, right? So it's like, if someone goes to you and says, oh, I want to have an MBA from Stanford and I'm a high school student, right? What do I do? Well, okay. So let's come up with a study program for you. Cause you're going to need to study every night. You're going to need to grow. No, no. I'm not worried about that little stuff. I just want to get an MBA from Stanford, <laughs> Um, And so I think that a lot of these cities, it's like, if you want to have big plants, you have to take modest steps. And it's not that the steps won't be visible, but you have to, you have to go step by step. You can't just, just jump into everything at once, I think. But in on the, the other hand, once you see the short term things, they, they can be maybe more exciting than they sound, you know. So if it's like if you bought sometimes talking about them isn't as exciting as doing them in a way. Like if you if you say, Hey, we're gonna do this this, you know, market and we'll have this entertainment and things like that, it can be a great experience, but sometimes people have to also see how it connects to the to the bigger picture, I guess.
1: Well even thinking about like you know what are some of those little things that you can do? And I'm gonna think a little bit about like you know downtown planning, just because that's kind of front of mind for me right now. You know the the you know the, the idea that the, the the small little thing can actually have a huge impact. You know there's kind of like a running joke amongst some of us about you know the first the first recommendation is always put up some twinkle lights. Um, you know. Just because it's creating atmosphere and makes you feel like you're you're somewhere special, and you know you put up twinkle lights, it's automatically a date night location. Seems like uh, that is not an expensive endeavor. You know that's a, that's a few thousand dollars um, of effort with a big impact. You know it's you know doing interim measures to test a big idea. You know. You don't have to immediately shut down a street and convert it into a really fancy, heavily landscaped, uh, walkable paseo. You know, you don't have to do that immediately. What you can you do immediately, uh, you can put up some barricades and put some plants from your local home improvement store and some, you know, cattle trough type containers with wheels on the bottom and set those up and probably get it sponsored. And and test fly an idea, and let people fall in love with an idea, or not, as the case may be. You're not out that much money, you know. It's it's fixing the little things that drive people nuts. And in one downtown, uh, our biggest complaint was that not that there wasn't enough parking. Well, that's always a complaint. Uh, Show me a downtown where that doesn't come up, and I'll be shocked. But uh, but they actually had a very tangible complaint, which was uh, that. A lot of people around there, you know, there's a lot of ranch and farm around there. That means there's a lot of like F250s. They did not physically fit in the parking spaces. Well, what's a really simple, you know, elegant solution to that? Change the angle so that you can fit a longer vehicle in there without interfering with travel lanes. How much does that cost? Paint. You know, that's all there is to it. You know, and those are little things that people notice and it, they feel good about it and you know, once you do that, then you can do the next larger thing, and people believe in it, and that's right. really that's kind of the name of the game in momentum building. And and by the way, even you know,
0: even some of these things that sound you know small on paper, where you know where it's like we're going to have we're going to do an event, we're going to test something out. Um, for a lot of people, that that might be the best experience they've ever had of a place. You know, where we've seen something where. It's a um, where we'll do, you know, having a dozen pop up retail spaces as well as some pop up outdoor spaces. Um, and you're just doing it for a day or two. Um, but people will tell you, I've lived in this community for 20 years. And this is the, the best experience I've ever had here um, in terms of public spaces. So I think that. Um, a lot of things might not, you know, you're, you're working toward a bigger goal. You want to have development. You want to have new new businesses coming in. You keep keep the businesses you have in this case. It's going to be a lot of it. Um, but you are also, in the meanwhile, creating an exceptional experience that, that makes people want to go to a place as well
2: as, as testing testing bigger ideas.
0: Um, one of the things, well,
2: yeah. Oh, I wanted to say, I think uh, one of the things you hit on hit. The nail on the head there is this idea of getting anything moving, getting things going, because uh, we talk about activation, right? And we talk about, you know, this activation inertia, right? So when things are not happening, they tend to continue to not happen. But whenever you get anything going, the likelihood of more things happening increases. And so if you're just, it's not always a bad idea if you to get something going on, because the increase of Activity, the increase of people going around and being in places and making things happen isn't a bad thing because we all know that eyes on the street, people walking around is not an in- insignificant thing. And so absolutely, if it's a small thing, but it's getting something happening and changing the inertia, changing the momentum to, to actually be going in a direction versus not happening at all, you know sometimes it's better to try a few different things that are very small and see which ones get the most movement or any movement at all and i I think this idea of activation inertia is something that i'm i'm more and more kind of thinking is an important deal not just culturally and but from a planning perspective and from a from a human psychological perspective
1: well, even in like how you do your, your community engagement on, on a project can make a difference. Uh, Rick, I don't remember if or Chris, if y'all were, either of y'all were at the conference in Waco, the APA conference, we had Candy Chang there uh, who does this, this great, uh, it's engagement through public art is my best description for it. And, uh, but she has a, uh, one installation that she's kind of well known for. Uh, where it's like it was like an empty storefront and the exercise was what do you wish this could be and people just would it was like slapping up post-it notes what do you wish this thing could be and what's what's great about that is that you know yes people are putting them up there but everybody's also reading them and somewhere in that group of people reading them is somebody that says well actually I can probably do that you know like you know I, I make a really mean cupcake I can, maybe I could commercialize that. Or, you know, I feel a little bit trite using the cupcake analogy. It's kind of, feels, feels a little spent, but we'll roll with it. Uh, but the, uh, you know, that type of thing where your your visioning process can start to inform these little wins. And the, even the vision process itself can be a little win. You know, you ask a lot of these communities, they've, they've never really been asked You know what what do they want their downtown to be like or what do they want this area town to be like you know it's you know there's been you know when they've had a plan there's been a good bit of top down style planning or or you know what we've actually called delphi method uh where you know trust us all we're all the experts you know sort of sort of stuff and um when in reality if you can make it a community-based plan, there's great ideas there and then your your role as the professional planner is to connect the dots versus right. versus draw the dots, which is a much different thing. Right. It's
0: it's it's interesting to me because you know as as you know we're we're very, very big when we do a plan into really getting ideas from the from the community. Um, and you know anything that we do is is a combination of of our own ideas that we vetted and other people's ideas that we've codified and given legitimacy to and saying okay this is how you fund it this is who needs to do it and and, and everything like that. Um, we talk a lot about as planners having a certain level of of humility because you know no matter how good we may be or we may think we are we can't do any of this stuff all by ourselves. Um, sometimes it's an Interesting exercise in humility when um, somebody you know, somebody runs with an idea that we had that we put in a plan. Um, and sometimes you're like, wow, you know, this is uh, this was my idea, and then you remember, wait a minute, I talked to this other person, and this was actually their idea. We just put it into a plan. We gave it a little bit of of um, wind, but they're doing their idea, and we just happen to give them some tools and resources that they need to do it so it's it's always like if you're coming in as the planner um you can know you're good like i i know i've spent you know more than a decade obsessively working on my craft and i'm proud of it but it's not about me and nobody's gonna care in in 10 years hey we did this you know, we did these things ash and lime or rick adamski was involved so it's kind of kind of about humility and kind of about that these things have to come from the grassroots
1: right yeah the, the 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 good and strong plans you know't you don't have to brag about they'll do it for you um, and and the idea of you know I, I'm really big on transferability of ideas between you know different cities and plans because you know as much as every place is unique you know every idea in every place with a couple of tweaks can probably be adjusted to almost anywhere else you just have to customize um, you know I think of like uh, you know, to use Actually, to use one of your, your projects that you've been kind of involved with, with Monty, uh, the Grow DeSoto uh, project, um, that's a fascinating setup there. Now, am I going to take that exact project from DeSoto and drop it into, I don't know, uh, Pecos? Uh, probably not. Not in that exact form. But the ideas behind it are really solid. The ideas of these small spaces that people can do their startups in that is very transferable. So it maybe it takes a different form in another place, but it still serves as a proof of concept. Um, and that's something I think is, you know, really important and often lost in, in a lot of plans is getting down to that level of detail and, and implementation.
0: Well, it's it's all of these things are, you know, all of these things are really about, Timeless principles. Right. And it's like we we would like to think as as planners who might be doing stuff that we might be able to to brag is a little bit more cutting edge. Uh, We might like to think that we invented these things. Um, But the idea of, for example, um, having a situation where people can start businesses if they have almost nothing, but they just have something that they can share in the marketplace and building up from there um that's that's as old as cities are i mean this where you have the you know the the marketplace and then you have a lot of other activities that take place we were actually discussing today the idea of the agora um you know which you happen to be where everybody traded but it happened to be where everything else happened as well so you could have uh, the the basic ideas of western civilization that come from this place that was basically a market or if you have something like the uh you know the medieval fair, um, where you know that was a time when it wasn 't safe to travel f- between, from city to city, so everybody has to travel to the city at the same time, and you have people who just do pop up they're they 're popping up and selling their wares, and you also happen to have some entertainment and some other things that that go along with this, so like all of this is timeless, and all of it has a lot of of things about it that are self-correcting that we don't fully understand. There's, there's kind of like a wisdom to it. Um, so anything like that, you can, you can transfer these ideas, but they're also things that we were doing before because they happen to make a lot of sense and address a lot of challenges. So that's kind of interesting. I'd like to talk more a little bit about about economic development because um, we actually had a great conversation um, with, with Emily Brown, who's an economic development consultant up in Pittsburgh, um, that we, we, we will be publishing soon where it kind of talks about the integration of economic development place making and what we might call incremental development. Um, but to me, it's, it's an interesting situation in Texas because we have this huge amount of economic development funds. So those funds, the, the revenue coming into them is going to shrink, but a lot of these communities are sitting on a lot of money. Um, and it was even very obvious before that a lot of the ways that they were doing business was, was misguided, sometimes mainly because of state statutes that maybe need to be changed. But other times it's just there, there was a way of doing business. Um, and so, for example, things like let's take all of our money and, and support chains coming in or let's take all of our money and support industrial jobs on the fringes. Might not have a clear return on investment for citizens, um, so you know a lot of my thinking is how do we take these funds, which a lot of times there 's a lot of money sitting in, in these funds still there 's still going to be money coming in. How do we use it more wisely? What have we been doing now, and how can we have a better return on investment that helps to address this current crisis that we 're in i 'd like to hear more about your thoughts on that
1: oh, so basically the, the how do we how do we change the, the last 20 to 30 years of economic development practice, you know, the, you know, the, you know, because, you know, historically these, you know, your EDCs and stuff, they were, they were created, they were, you know, the, the, the affectionate term that's been used is smokestacks to, uh, chasing, um, looking for the, for the, for the home run balls, and uh, anybody who's been around me for more than about five minutes knows that I'm an obsessive baseball fan, and there's one little, little dinky statistic that I love to mention to people, which is you know, how often does the team that led in home runs win the World Series?
0: Let me think, let me think
1: about when the last time that was. I don't know. How, how often does it's, it happen? It's rare. Uh, much more common is which, which teams win the World Series that, that have the, the, the most singles and the most multi-base hits and the highest RBI percentage. That is a very high statistic. So what what that's telling you is instead of focusing exclusively on the home run ball, focus on making contact and getting on base and just do it over and over and over. Um, because then if you're doing it that way, you're not getting outs. So you're not striking out, going for the big win. You're getting on base. You're scoring runs. Is it glamorous? Mm, not really. But now imagine if you get three people on base and then you do hit that home run with it. That's a grand slam. That's fun. It's a big rowdy party in the stands. Everybody loves it. Um, so it, it kind of goes to its that, that that's a really important aspect of building energy. So to go back to economic development world, um, it's you know looking at you know what are a lot of these things really supposed to be doing. Um, you know. the the idea that you can you got all this, you know, income coming into these development corporations and you know, yes there is definitely a place for pursuing large projects. They they have to go somewhere. And and when matched well to the skill sets of your citizens, they can be a great win. You know, if you know that what you have to watch for though is you know you land this big business but are they actually just going to be importing employees from somewhere else uh because it's actually not a great match between skill and 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 job um so i think you'll, you're going to see that come up a lot more i think um especially since we've now you know touched that third rail to see exactly how fragile an economy can be you know i've, I've pointed out to several people now you know you see the the the, the the picture I think that's going to be seared into people's minds, uh, from this COVID crisis hasn't been talked about a whole lot yet, which is these massive lines you've seen at food banks. Um, and as near as I can tell from, from my research, I think we're the only, um, you know, large, large economy that is like that. Um, as near as I can tell, or classically called a developed economy. Um, you know, when you compare that to other places in Europe and things like that. So I think that's a interesting conversation to be had. Uh, but also looking longer term at, you know, what are going to be the, the impacts of how people shop and, you know, how use are people going to get to telework? Um, you know, I think one of the open questions is what does office development look like going forward? Um, you know, there's been several really interesting publications about the ideas of decentralized offices and things like that which i think represent really cool opportunities for smaller cities where you know maybe a, a smaller city you know wasn't really in the game to land an amazon headquarters which was you know as much as people like to bash on that the thing i liked about the amazon rfq was its emphasis on placemaking as an aspect of their values i was like that's that's the win there um uh, but you know, so you can't land a, a big Amazon headquarters, but let's say that you know somebody like an Amazon pivots and says, "We're not going to do the big massive headquarters anymore. We're going to set up these you know regionally based offices all over the place." And suddenly, somebody in uh, oh, I'm going to pick another distant town. Uh, I'll go with Alpine. Uh, you know, so they say, "Well, you know, it looks like we've got like maybe 10 or 12 people that that." in the alpine area let's just put an office there and uh you know little little micro offices uh i think that's a really interesting idea i think telework is changing a lot of things about uh, neighborhood economic development um this whole idea of like complete neighborhoods uh which i think is going to start to affect you know what do you what do you look at for your small business targets you know what makes a, a neighborhood lively you know everybody's been walking around and some people are finding that they're very excited about their neighborhoods, like I am. I'm right in the heart of San Marcus. I can walk to, well, when things weren't shut down, I could, I could probably walk to 40 different restaurants. Um, you know, So I am I found a you know, very happy place. You know, if you're some of these other people, they have been very disappointed in the neighborhoods they live in because they're finding they've got nowhere to go. Uh, when I see places that have nowhere to go, I just see opportunity. You know, that's a, a, an opportunity to restructure something and... I think EDCS can get into that space, um, and you know maybe it's it's a matter of getting used to not doing the glamorous things, or to start or to start treating the small things like they're glamorous. You know, um, I've I've never under, understood the big huge press conference for the huge project that comes in when there's maybe twenty small businesses that open. To me, that's the much more interesting story. That's twenty people chasing their dream. That's a that's to me is a way more interesting story to re- hear on the news. Um, yeah, you know, that I'm I'm yeah you know, I've always, I've kind of always questioned you know why isn't that the bigger deal but you know it's
2: it's all well, other conversations I think. I- I want to go back to a baseball analogy with exactly what you're talking about you know I think a lot of us you know the home run ball the home run ball is really cool all that stuff right but what do we know about people that try to hit home runs all the time they strike out a lot right Uh, I think part of it is there's this concern that well if we hit a home run then we don't have to worry about a defense like like interrupting what we're doing here right if we hit the home run nothing can really stop the ball from going over the fence right unless it's really close so you don't have to worry about the defense but the idea of making solid contact right continually making solid contact we talk about this all the time whenever we do pitches or whenever we do certain things we're like look we did the best we could with the resources we had we hit the ball really well and someone made a great play and we didn't you know you didn't normally that wouldn't happen but sometimes it happens right and that, that's how baseball goes right um but that the, you know if, if you understand baseball you you know that it's way better to have a double with runners on second and third than it is to have a home run with nobody on base right because you're getting two runs versus one and you're still having runners on base right so this idea of you know You have to have, having runners on base when you're hitting a home run is better than not having runners on base. And those runners didn't get on by hitting home runs. You don't get runners on base, right? So this, I think we fall in love with this, the grandiose home run with nobody on base. And we celebrate that more than a double that's that's knocking two other runs in and when you look at it from a very practical perspective you're like well two runs is better than one why are we celebrating this one run but you know it comes back to this you know you can have the fireworks and you don't usually have fireworks on a double right you don't have the fireworks on the on the on the solo home run and so it's really very, I think it's almost this human nature thing where we have to pull ourselves away from the things that uh, cause us to strike out maybe more often than I'd even, I'd I'd even like, like to take.
0: I'd even like to, to stretch out this analogy even further because I see something that's that's even that's even clearer. Um, there's room on the team for somebody who's basically a home run hitter who doesn't who get who strikes out a lot who doesn't have a great batting average, right? There's no room on the team for somebody who's basically a home run hitter who hits the ball and doesn't run as fast as they can towards first base, like. Everybody hates that person. It doesn't matter if they hit sixty home runs. They, they, any manager in their right mind is going to say, "I'm going to bench you because you hit the ball and you could have maybe gotten on first base and you didn't do all that all that you could." So, I mean, that's that's what I see sometimes. It's not that there isn't room for organizations that that are more the oriented toward the home run hitter toward the home run you know that's that's okay like there you can structure but like you you have to get the single when you can and you have to do your best for the single and and you and if you're if you're like if if you had if you interviewed the guy afterwards and you said why did you run and the guy said well it was only we i would have only got the first base i really want to focus on the home runs Everybody would hate that person and, and that's and that's something that, that we can't that we can't do. But you know, I, I think I think what is what's what's interesting and I do want to talk about other other projects that you're working on, but I think that really the key in my opinion is that it's it it's about like getting new businesses in right now can't be as important as retention of what you have and supporting entrepreneurs and figuring out what tools they need to, 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 get that, whether that, you know, is that a website, is that social media, is that, you know, GIS mapping information? Like what, what do these businesses need? And I've been talking about, you know, things like the, the economic gardening and, and stuff like that, um, that I, that I think are, are interesting models that, that we need to, to look at, um. That being said, I'd love to hear kind of sort of some specifics maybe a a, a client that you're working with um, that you've had to rethink some things um, to to serve them best based on this this crisis and kind of how you might be thinking about about how you're working with them right now
1: sure so there's a, a few examples I can think of and you kind of heard me mention this at the beginning that you know in, in my case, I don't think my approach has really changed um, because you know, I've I've kind of always kind of brought this you know resiliency perspective of of you know you want things to be able to, to bounce and not you want things to go bat, to bounce and not go thud um, a little bit uh, and so that's kind of what what kind of informs a lot of my work. Um, a, a great example uh, is actually it's a suburb of of San Antonio, Live Oak, uh, northeast San Antonio. Um, it's it's a place that I actually hold kind of near and dear to my heart um, because uh, back when I was in high school, uh, I was taking Ashley on dates to a movie theater there. So, uh, and also uh, there there used to be this really really probably slightly sketchy uh, music venue there that uh, hosted a lot of the a lot of the metal shows. So um, so it's a special place in my heart. Uh, but they're 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 looking at the prospect of build out. Um, it's uh, the first comprehensive plan they've done where we have set where, where we've been able to say, "Hey, this you can actually see the end here in terms of greenfield development," and that prompts a new conversation because we look at the development pattern and what they're already starting to see, which is you know some strip centers that are uh, essentially have become obsolete. Uh, they have high vacancy rates, things like that, um, maybe slightly eyesore-ish, and. Uh, and looked at how do you, wh- what do you do now? Because kind of the inherent problem of suburban development is it's built for a single life. Um, it doesn't go on to new lives typically or it doesn't do it very elegantly. Um, and so our conversation there shifted to suburban retrofitting uh, which is a, a fun topic because at its very fundamental base is this idea of incrementalism and, and making small changes to places to bring them back. And so you, what you saw there was, was this change towards uh, the idea that your commercial districts really shouldn't be exclusively commercial districts. Uh, they, sh- they should have res- residential components to them uh, because that's how you get people in there. And if you get people in there then you get life in there. If you get life in there then it becomes a new economic opportunity um, and things can start to have these new lives. Um, And so you saw that kind of start to invigorate their process. Live Oak had a long record of very successful economic development initiatives probably by almost any measure. Um, You know they, they they went from you know probably 20 years ago uh, having very little sales tax to today, they had this robust sales tax environment. Well, the uh, you know fast forward to today, today, and you know one of their their biggest uh, uh, employer or biggest sales tax generators there is IKEA. Um, IKEA shut down their stores, um, so. Uh, so that narrative is changing probably a little bit for them. Um, I should have thought to do a follow-up with them today before getting on this call. But, uh, but you know, thinking about, you know, what what can work in some of these older strip centers, um, you know, what's kind of nice there is a lot of them are actually structured where they could be blocked out really easily. Um, and uh, some things like that where it's easy to take, take little bets. They've got a great community college there that's grown, you know, exponentially. Uh, to the point that it probably has enough student life that that can become a basis for uh for for certain, you know neighborhood services things like that, so these are all issues that were getting injected into the 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 live Oak conversation anyway. I think they 've taken on more importance uh, because when you when you see what the exit of an economic you know downturn looks like it's you know, people hitting community colleges to, re, to rebuild new skills that they've realized they need at, a, at an affordable price. It's, um, you know, looking at uh, what, what were people seeking, you know, the people that became unemployed, what were they doing? What were their skills? How can you match that to something that's a little bit more resilient? Um, some of those types of issues popped up there. Um, their whole economic, actually what's kind of interesting within their comp plan is we merged their economic development conversation with housing and neighborhoods uh, because they're really kind of inseparable um, and and had that conversation in that context of, you know, what does it mean to build resiliency now? You know, they've built a strong economy, now how do you make it resilient? Um, and so a lot of those issues were already, already cropping up uh, in, into that space. Um, so that was, you know, a really interesting aspect of that. We also uh, sort of right-sizing infrastructure, the idea that, you know, your street section should reflect what's really possible and and not, you know, page, you know, 1,437 out of whatever manual, um, you know, look at what what can it really be and work with what you got. Um, and lots of, you know, finding small victories and a big emphasis on quality of life. Um, one of the things we've talked about a lot internally at freeze and Nichols, the this you know, coronavirus has revealed is the importance of public spaces. Um, and the, the very fact that they were closed, it was because they were crowding. What does that tell you? It tells you that you don't have enough, uh, that, that you may have a deficit there. So I think that things like parks are be- going to grow in importance. Um, you know, you've seen, you know, street closures because they figured out that sidewalks weren't wide enough, which is something that, you know, a number of planners have been screaming and yelling about for years. um, yeah, where uh, yeah, I felt like I was just, you know, screaming into the into outer space and you know, they, nobody can hear you screaming outer space and now suddenly I've got a microphone and I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, but the uh some of those types of things are emerging um, out of that. Um our Midlothian downtown plan is very similar in that in that manner, looking at, you know, how do you create these balanced spaces, how do you create this incrementalism, all stuff that was you know, pre coronavirus and made sense and I think still does. Um, you know one of the interesting phenomenons that I've seen in some of the you know the, the statistics about people you know doing the support local uh, is looking at restaurant performance and comparing how the chains are doing versus actual true local restaurants um, you know true local restaurants you know they're they're operating far more at the margins It's that's a hard business um, you know I can say that having spent years in, in, in restaurant world but the uh, um, but what's been interesting is when push has come to shove uh, for people in these communities and they're going to get their takeout food, where are they going now? They're going to the local uh, because because you're, you're seeing a lot of the messaging that said, hey, go support your small businesses, go support your small businesses. Uh, people are bright enough to know that. You know, in a lot of cases, chains are not your small businesses. Now, sometimes they are. You do have, you know, local franchisees, and that shouldn't be forgotten. But um, you, you've seen that pop up when you see the the, the reports on how is uh, how is Darden Foods faring and things like that, and they're getting you know thumped a little bit. But other small restaurants that I've talked to here in San Marcos, they've said, you know, hey, we're we're getting by. You know, it's you know, it's a great no, but. We think we're going to survive, and we think we're going to survive because of these efforts of you know people campaigning the, on the support local, and and a lot of times even just cities being flexible in in how they're they're allowing these businesses to function. You know, you know, not worrying about the uh, the, the new uh, you know sandwich board sign that got stuck out on the sidewalk that says, "Hey, pull up here to get your to-go order." you know, those issues have suddenly kind of stopped mattering for cities. And I think that's interesting. Um, and that can even, uh, you know, that kind of adaptability, I think is important. Yeah.
2: I think it's really interesting that you brought up the adaptability and all those different things. we we, without talking about some of the specific ideas we're thinking about rolling out in the next few months. Um, I definitely see this as accelerating some of these changes that have kind of been coming for a while. You Know we know retail has been changing a lot. We don't at all think that retail is going to go away. We know that there's always going to be a desire for people to go and shop, but it looks different. We know it's going to look different. We, like you mentioned, with shopping centers uh, and having an increase in vacancy over the last you know decade because of things like Amazon and you know online shopping, right? The internet's changed a lot of stuff, so we know that retail space is going to be in somewhat of an abundance in the sense that. Um, there's gonna be a lot of retail that's empty. Um, unfortunately, there's gonna be probably a lot of restaurant that's empty, at least for a little while, um, while we kind of uh, repopulate those places. Um, and office spaces are gonna be less in demand with all of this, at least to some extent, because some people are gonna go, you know what, I, we can work from home more easily than we thought we could. It's not gonna be everybody, but it's gonna be some people. And in addition to that, unfortunately, we're going to have some businesses that don't make it through this. So there's just there's going to be a lot of space out there, right? But as you mentioned, there's this this huge demand at the same time as, you know, we're not going to be going out necessarily as much for office. We still will for a lot of people, but everybody won't. We're not going to be going out as much for retail cuz we we can order our essential items from home and we've gotten more used to it, right? And we're not going to necessarily go out for you know, certain restaurants, because maybe they're not there right now, but we still want to go out. And that craving to go out is greater than ever than it's been for a lot of people right now, right? We all, as soon as everything opens back up to the extent that you feel comfortable, you're going to be going out and you want to go do something because you're tired of being quarantined. So that desire to go out and congregate with people uh, is going to be reflected in a new way. And we, we have to adapt to that. We have to figure out these ways to have, like you said, there's I think there's going to be more public spaces. I really do. I, I, I think they're going to maybe be semi-public, semi-private, but I, I think there's going to be more spaces for people to congregate and do some of these things, but in a different way than we've seen before, similar to how when malls kind of became really popular. I think there's going to be this new thing that kind of establishes itself as an idea of what we kind of start to move towards given what we have, because we have all this space, you know, and people crave to get out and utilize this space. We just, What we have to do is activate that space and retrofit it to the, to the ways that, um, people are going to want to go out there and utilize it and feel comfortable with it. And including it. including a social, social
1: distancing. distancing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Whatever that may
2: be. And, and
1: I think you're going to see like, you know, I think of like, you know, the restaurants, um, you know, the 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 U.S. is a little bit unique in that our restaurants are one-trick ponies here. Um, whereas, you know, now you're starting to see some of these that have gotten really smart and agile. They've actually started setting up grocery-type uh, services in them. The reason that works so well for them is because they're getting food delivered anyway. So, you know, why not just, you know, change up the order a little bit, and you can actually meet a need because the grocery stores... They're actually, they're doing a good job of keeping up, but there's not enough grocery stores, so you're running social distancing issues. Now, a restaurant gets into that space, that gets a little bit more interesting, and that's helping restaurants get by. I'm wondering if some aspects of that are actually going to stick around uh, after this. Because I remember, you know, actually, you don't have to go to Europe for this. You can go to New York City and, and go to some of these I forget, I think I always heard them called like a Greek diner, but these little postage stamp size spaces where it looks like a little tiny sea store and then they've got a little kitchen that maybe takes up maybe 75 square feet, yet they're able to produce some ungodly amount of food out of it um, that just doesn't seem possible. And I think you're going to see that model start to be ported in. To more markets, um, you know, it's the idea that you know every business should be a little bit multi-purpose. You know, I think we've talked about this before. The idea of an art gallery um, as a as a business model is a really difficult business model. Now, an art gallery that also has a wine bar and also does art classes and also can host a, uh, a bachelor or bachelorette party, that's a much more interesting business model that is much more resilient. Um, So I think you're going to see a lot of that type of stuff emerge. I think you're going to see some changes to how we size restaurants, Um, and retail is the same way. Um, I'm not somebody that's a firm believer that that retail, especially experiential retail in downtowns, is going to go away. Um, I think what some people are finding in this online environment is that there are certain things they hate doing online. Um, I hate buying shoes online. I hate buying clothes online. Um, you know, those are things that I don't enjoy. Um, you know, that's a space that smaller businesses can operate in. Is it easy? Nope. Not easy at all, but it can be done. Um, so I I think some about, you know, what that might look like going forward. Um, you've already seen some of this with coffee shops that flip and become bars at night. Um, I think you'll see more stuff like that, where there, where things have multiple personalities by day and by night. um, and uh, I think that's going to be really interesting, and I think that's going to cross over into even office spaces, um, you know, co-working spaces. You know, as a business model, they've been hard to pull off without them being a nonprofit. But the some of the ideas of them are interesting. Um, you know, the idea that you know by day there are these you know spaces where people work, but in the evenings a lot of them convert and have events and things like that. Why couldn't more offices do that? Why couldn't a, a real estate office uh, at, in, in the evenings uh, flip their lobby and it become a pop-up retail space? You know, give me one good reason why that can't happen. Um, and one of the things that really inspires me is seeing how cities, cities have adapted their, their processes. Um, that's going to be the one great takeaway from this is uh, when everybody went to a remote environment, Every single piece of unnecessary red tape became neon red, and 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 they started cutting it. They said, "You know, this is not working. Let's change it. Let's change to this." Um, you know, everybody has some form of online permitting systems now. It seems like you know, imagine that it took a crisis, um, but that's allowing. some of these things to work better but you're also seeing changes in in simple policies. Uh, An example I can share is uh, I want to say it was somewhere in the DFW area but uh, the Walmart was wanting the ability to use megaphones and things like that um, to help direct people outside while there was you know noise restrictions and stuff like that. So the, the, the Walmart representative contacted the city and said hey we've got this issue and the city was like oh and in the span of 30 minutes, uh, enacted a temporary policy waiving that requirement. You know, cities can be agile uh, if 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 you if you let them, um, and if you and if you're you know willing to accept a little bit of risk to do the right thing. Um, so I think that'll change. I think you'll see changes in how occupancy is treated in buildings. Um, you know, interim occupancies, things like that, that make a big difference. Which is all like. Which is all like little tiny, minuscule things that, you know, is what allows the space for experimentation. Um, a, you know, but this goes maybe an optimist. I get excited about every challenge. You know, kind of, you know, no matter how how scary or you know, raw it may seem. You know, I'm still like, you know. Set the torches on fire let's run forward and see how this goes. Well, uh, and we can also
0: set the torches on fire incrementally if that makes sense as well. Kind of find a few key things that that are that are your areas of, of focus. Um, so I there there's there's so many there's so many good things here, and I, we're trying to get out of the habit of talking to fascinating people like you and 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 pushing our podcast conversations close to two hours, um, because we do want to be um, mindful of, of everybody's um, attention span. Um, but but there are a, a a couple things that I'm hoping that we can that we can hit on. Um, before we go, um, and maybe a few things. Um, one is uh, I wanted to talk about um, perhaps obsolete strip centers and how we think about them now, because if you thought they were obsolete three months ago, you know, gosh, um, we're really going to have to rethink these. Um, and a second thing among the, the several things I'd like to talk to you about, you mentioned something about having some disaster relief um, experience and I'd, I'd like and maybe maybe this is is something to talk about first. I'd like to talk a little bit about what your experience may be and, and how you can see it relating to um, this particular crisis that we're facing now.
1: Yeah, so uh, so there's a, a kind of a, a, always been a running joke in FEMA you know, never let a good crisis go to waste um, and it's, it's always been said tongue in cheek but there's a strong element of truth to it. So I had the benefit of working uh, for cities for a long time, and I was always in the emergency management world of that in some way, shape, or fashion for dealing with acute emergency response. But then I also spent a couple of years in true disaster recovery uh, related to Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Dolly. And... uh, we, what I saw come out of that was really interesting and in the different approaches that cities took um, some cities were let's get right back to where we were as fast as humanly possible does that narrative sound familiar? while um, well, other cities they stepped back not for long I'm talking you know, a half a second, a second got some oxygen in their lungs and said okay what should we be doing now? And they took the time to plan and they took the time to adjust codes and things like that. Stuff that is not glamorous by any measure um, in a in a crisis response situation, but they took the time to do it. And those places come out the other side much, much stronger because um, they've got a vision for how what they want to get. They get the infrastructure in place for it. Everything's coordinated. You're not you know, the, you know, an analogy you could use is it's tantamount to you're shooting a rifle versus a shotgun. You know, you're, you're, you're precise. You're hitting the target versus, you know, yeah, a couple of pellets may have hit the target, but most of it ended up in the hill behind the target. You know, that didn't do you any good. Um, so that, that's kind of a a key thing that I've seen come out of disaster recovery. Also, um, and, I, and I'll tell you that somebody else you ought to talk to on this podcast at some point is Laura, Laura Clemens. Mm-hmm. Um, you we're planning to, yeah. Uh, just because she is one of the most skilled people I've seen. And uh, manipulating is the wrong word. but uh, And exploiting is also the wrong word. But finding the, the, the hacks. Yeah, finding those little hacks in federal funding under disaster recovery where you can do really, really cool things. Uh, by picking and choosing pieces of different programs and plugging them in together. Um, and that, that's something I think is important when we look at uh, and, you know, you can start even looking at, like, the mitigation programs that are coming out of the GLO now um, that are that are looking at resilient communities and things like that, and they're focused on plan making and development codes. You know, that's that's what needs to be happening right now in fact in in a recession that is the perfect time to be adjusting your codes the perfect time to be doing your plans because you're getting everything lined up so that way when the dam breaks and it will you're ready and you can leverage every single opportunity that rolls your way and you you come out looking like a genius and and you know you've seen that in, in other cities as well that have you know leveraged things smartly um I'll point at Port Arthur um, that you know thats that's a city that many will tell you that that is a city that's had a hard hard go of it. Um, they were heavily impacted in the 1960s uh, in the civil rights era. They have been hit by I don't know how many hurricanes at this point, but they took the time to plan and that's starting to pay off for them uh, one of my It's one of my counterparts at the at the at the firm uh, Shad Como. Uh, that led their downtown planning effort and it's built around you know big ideas big wins but also little wins and they're starting to get some of their big wins um they've got companies talking about relocating to you know, downtown and things like that that um and and that have given hope and that's really something in in this emergency and disaster framework that if planners listening to this don't take away anything else, it's that what is planning fundamentally? When you scrape away all of the all the jargon and all the bits and pieces, what is it really fundamentally? And fundamentally, we're purveyors of hope. Um, that our, our job is to get the community together and f- help them find their optimism and belief that they can be something more. No matter how downtrodden a place is or how successful a place is, there is always room for more, and for more hope, and for more ambition, and that—that that is something that I think we need to do. That's—that's uh, that's our opportunity as professional planners. I would argue it's our obligation as professional planners is to make sure we're communicating that, and and make sure that we're we're, we're demonstrating what our skills can do. You know, when we're when we're talking about things like, you know, stuff that's not very excited, like digital meetings but also simultaneously talking about issues of digital divide and what does that mean and how do you engage a population that maybe doesn't have internet? I'm dealing with that in Brownsville uh, where uh, there's large swaths of the population that don't have broadband access and you know how do you how do you approach that? Um, even, in, even in San Marcos where I live it's got the same situation. Um, so the uh, So these are all you know again opportunities I I see going forward so that's where I I view the disaster recovery lens on this. Um, You know thinking about uh, you know what are these obsolete places you know what do they look like going forward Um, you know it a lot of times places have to kind of hit rock bottom before they can be built back up. Um, I think that's tends to be true of these obsolete strip centers. Because if they're making just enough money to pay the taxes, then a lot of times the property owner doesn't care. Well, if they're making no money, then the property owner suddenly starts to care (laughs) uh, and starts getting, you know, interested in new ideas. Um, Yeah, we've seen that. uh, There's a center here in in San Marcos called Springtown Mall uh, where all the anchors left. And it sat, I'd say, for a good five or six years uh, as functionally vacant. Um, and then it, the timing was right and somebody came in, bought it up and started doing it's not true incremental development uh, but it's a lot closer to it than, than big big, large mall um, and, uh, and that's paying off, they've injected mixed use buildings into it and some things like that that are really cool and that's where I think a lot of that can go um, going forward
0: You know, it's interesting about the the suburban retrofit stuff because I felt even before like so much of the case studies and ideas and conversation was about places where you can, you know, the market pressure was so strong that you could do just about anything. So you see these before and after pictures. And look, this is a small that wasn't doing very well. And now here it is after a bunch of developers came in and invested $50 million into it. Um, and now to me, you know, we've worked in, in as you know, a couple of contexts in places like Hearst and DeSoto where we had to think much, much more incrementally where there wasn't the same development pressure about, about how to kind of help some of these places reach the next level. But now, you know, even the assumptions that you have, you know, that, for example, okay, these are all retail strip centers, there's not going to be any residential here. Um, We're going to have to rethink that, but we're going to have to rethink that in a way that isn't a developer comes in and spends a ton of money, but is more, okay, let's subdivide this and have a residential component um, or let's redefine some of this space because there wasn't necessarily even this much commercial demand before, and now there's a lot less. So how this is done creatively in, in the places where, you don't have massive development pressure is going to be one of the most important questions that faces most places, I think, because, you know, most of, most of the, this country is not, you know, you might have a couple blocks or a few blocks of a fantastic, you know, pre-war downtown, but you're dealing mostly with a lot of things like strip malls that are obsolete and that you – these are the places where we're going to have to create a good human experience, for people.
2: Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. You brought up how restaurants are becoming kind of like little grocery stores in a lot of places and how that's, that's something that might stick around. Uh, Monty, uh, who was on uh earlier podcast was talking to us about, uh, he has a bar in one of his developments in his downtown that's having record sales and they're just selling stuff like plastic gloves, napkins, you know, uh, paper towels, Food as well, but all the stuff that they kind of got in anyway, and they just were like, they turned themselves into kind of a general store and they're selling like crazy. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, the resiliency of doing things like that and how the the things might become more permanent. He, He specifically mentioned how we don't have as many grocery stores locally as as places like in Europe or other parts of the world like you mentioned New York and in the United States we don't do it very often but this idea because we've relied on the car mostly right but if you have these more localized grocery stores I could definitely see that as something uh, emerging uh, a lot over the over the next months, years and I, I think it's something that we've all, kind of would like but it's something that requires a little bit of a change to our thought process and infrastructure especially here in Texas to doing that because you know you there's a certain length of walk that you, is comfortable for something of that nature and so redesigning some things around it is also going to be necessary which goes back to like you said talking about what planners really do and how we we kind of contribute to that yeah, you
1: know one of the ideas that is come out of the and i'm always very hesitant to use an example from like a portland oregon but i'm going to uh because it's, it's hard to transfer portland and eugene into texas but the uh but that's kind of the birthplace of the idea of the 20 minute neighborhood assessment and that's something i'm starting to infuse my work with is you know what goods and services can you get in that 20 minute walk because that's about That's about as long as somebody's a general person is really willing to go, um, to to really do almost anything without getting in their car. Um, It's unfortunate. I'm I'm definitely an outlier on that, but um, we all are. Yeah. (laughs) But the uh, but I I think that type of assessment is going to start showing up uh, in unexpected places. Um, You know, within Texas. Um, I think we're going to start rethinking a lot of our zoning stuff. Um, you know, the work that I'm doing in Brownsville, uh, we've talked about is fundamentally uh, creating a unified development code there that functions like a pink zone um, mm. <laughs> when the dust clears away. That, uh, that, that could, away you tell, that, could you tell that, our
0: but, listeners who might not be familiar with pink zones what that, what that oh, is? Oh,
1: sure. So pink zones, it's the idea that uh, it's, it's, I think the, the term is light red tape. Um, where we're looking at, you know, how red does that red tape really need to be? Is there a better way to do it that still accomplishes the goal? So very heavy emphasis on process streamlining, uh, building flexibility into your codes so that uh, so that things can be decided administratively if certain boxes are checked sort of thing uh, for flexibility. Uh, so a lot of those issues. Um, and looking at flexibility and in, in what can be built on the ground. Um you know, in, in Brownsville, it's this great border city. I love border cities; they're fascinating, and and they've got these you know great urban forms to them and great types of buildings, um, including my favorite land use type, the bodega. Um, every planner should have a favorite land use. Mine's the bodega. Um, I think it's because I I like beer and good meat, I guess. Um, but the uh, but. Uh, like so many cities, Brownsville had adopted an essentially suburban uh, code model in the, in the 70s and 80s and had essentially made, I, I would almost argue they made their culture illegal um, by, by uh, you know, making so many of these uses, either non-conforming uses or you know, that type of thing. And you end up with these great buildings that have now sat vacant for decades because they couldn't be reoccupied. Um, and some issues like that. Uh, so that's been a really, you know, interesting experience down there. In, in, you know, really streamlining and customizing to a place and culture. Um, you know, looking at how do you how do you do, properly do residential infill, and you know, are there ways you can do this without relying on historic districts in every in every instance to get good design, which you know mean, planners know that there are ways to do that. There's true blue thorn-based codes. There's design-heavy conventional codes, and everything in between, and uh, and it can all be done largely prescriptively. Um, and that's what's kind of getting baked in uh, down in Brownsville. Um, and it's been a been a great experience down there, um, of because they've got you know you've got the international aspect of the border, but you also have really strange things down there, like the SpaceX. Uh, stuff so you've got this really interesting mix of stuff economically happening um, that uh, you know I, I I took that that project on down there largely because I, I went down there's like this is not the Brownsville I remember you know I used to you know go down to the valley when I was a kid and uh, and this is way different now it's it it feels it's not cosmopolitan isn't the right word. Um, because it's, you, you definitely you know you're on, you're in the frontera, but uh, but it feels it feels a little bit more international, and it's it's an interesting place now, and uh, you know it's been very exciting to work in work in that that arena, and a lot that's built around incrementalism, and you know being able to do adaptive reuse and kind of doing the next the next increment of of development. Uh, you know in a lot of these spaces so that they can have their second and third lives and things like that and it's been uh and a lot of it's been based on let's you know let's figure out where where is the right role of government there and where do we need to get out of the way right. and 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 navigating that space
0: That's that's uh that sounds like a very interesting project. I've not been to that part of the state, but I I do uh have a friend who's from that area, and it seems like a a, a really fascinating area Oh, that part of the um, states delicious. That's what he's described. Yeah, it just seemed, it seems like it's... I haven't been in a he long kind of, time. He
2: kind of, I need to go. Based back. on
0: his description, it's like it seems like it's you're kind of not really in the United States, but not really in Mexico. It's almost like you're you're kind of uh, maybe maybe partially in, in both over there. Um, one one uh, maybe before kind of giving you the the floor to 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 saying um, whatever it is you'd, you'd like to say to close out. One other thing that I find to be interesting um you know when i first met you um over the course of of a couple of years you were um i believe assistant city manager which was, was your role in Buda. Um, and uh, we, as as you know, we ended up you know working with you, and just as you were you were kind of leaving that and, and going into your current role. Um, but we saw a lot of very fascinating things. First of all, with the with the adaptive reuse that's now become this this art center, which is obviously on hold right now. Um, but I've just noticed on my social media. First, it seemed to be that the city was was doing some really strong stuff in terms of of promoting the, the downtown restaurants like I I it drew my attention more than any other place I've seen um, and now they have a um, uh, kind of a uh, a fund that's for some of the small businesses so that they can keep open so those seem like some some pretty strong things I know you're no longer working there but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what was set up there and, and the culture and and how it how it kind of became a culture where they were doing they were kind of more prepared maybe than some other places for this type of disruption
1: sure so i've told people before that the Butte is probably what i'm i'm most identified with uh, i spent eight years of my career there and it is kind of my career defining work um when i was brought in there um uh my my question uh to the to the city manager kenneth uh which we're, we're friends today now was um you know, I'm coming here. I'm going to be implementing best practices. I will be pushing the envelope. Are you okay with that? And he said, Yes. That's what. That's what we want. We want to be a planning forward community, um, and you know, we're going to support you and back you on that. And my response was, I bet you're going to fire me in three years. Um, but the uh, <laughs> uh, re- reality was obviously much different. Um, but there, um, you know. Buda is a different place because Buda had a few hot stove moments early on in its growth cycle and when they touch the hot stove, they burn their hand pretty bad and you do that a couple of times and suddenly you get religious about planning um, and that's, that's really what happened there so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like it was all me because it was not, far from it uh, it was very much community initiative there where they said hey, we don't want these things to happen again we... Uh, we want to be forward-thinking. We want to, you know, do things right. Um, to use a, a Mitch Silver, you know, quote, uh, Buda was ready to transition from a deal-making city to a plan-making city, and uh, and so that's kind of the the ethos that got set up there. We we played a comprehensive plan. Uh, if you look at that thing, it is an implementation-focused plan um, that that was heavily shaped. Um, and we, we had an outstanding consultant that helped us with that. Half Associates, you know, yes, they're a competitor, but they're friends too. That's one nice thing in this business—we're all friends. <laughs> uh, but uh, but it was also you know pretty well infected by what we were looking for as a, as city staff. You know, I wanted something where it had 200 implementation actions. I'm like, let's go heavy on this and and do this right. And uh, and that manifested itself into other plans and efforts uh, going forward. But what you started to see more and more is that the idea of, uh, of small business focus and incrementalism kept bubbling up more and more and more. Um, also, the way our plans were structured, uh, they were designed to inform the, the city council's strategic planning uh, process. So you have comprehensive plan and you have council strategic plan talking to each other. And by the time I left Buda, it was normal to hear the comprehensive plan and strategic plan mentioned at every single council meeting. That was our normal. Wow. And okay. Uh, and that's that's part of why you see the things that you see there now. And uh, when when I got there, because my, my, my belief was that you know I'm gonna step on some toes and eventually get pushed out, uh, was to was to try to create something that that lasts that lasts beyond personalities um and so that's kind of what happened there we made some really outstanding hires uh that have been just you know awesome in pushing this forward uh the tourism director there Alyssa Gonzalez is amazing uh Maggie Gillespie is a firecracker of a main street director and uh and then you've got your your city management that's right back behind that as well that's pushing the that's that's willing to support and push envelopes, and can and has actually seen enough successes with small business support and what those can become in the community that uh, that he's that, that when it came time to you know look at these small businesses and ask what do we do now, it was never a question of whether it was a question of how um, is the my my takeaway from that and that's that's outstanding leadership there because. That's that's the, the city and the EDC looking at their reserves and saying, what, should we, what's, what do we best use these reserve funds for? And they decided that the best thing we can do is support our small businesses and hope that they come out the other side of this and know that when they do come out the other side, that they're going to remember and that they're going to be our biggest cheerleaders uh, going forward. Um, that's kind of how how Buta operates it's a different place um and uh, a great place and uh you know the, the the work there it's it's something I'm I'm very proud of um it's something the community's proud of and uh you know it's you, you can you can now having having been there yourself you can kind of see what, <laughs> what I was talking about for years with you that like hey this is a special place they're doing something's different here and uh and I think that's probably the same takeaway you've yeah Rick there, and I
2: Rick and I both had said that we would be willing to live there and for a small town. Like, neither of us are in, have a proclivity towards small towns in I general. I like small towns, but, but the, uh, living
0: in one would be a, we would like be small a, towns. a challenge, I right. think, yeah.
2: Living, it's, the, but being willing to live there. It, it's a, yeah, it, we both were like, I could I could totally live here, which uh, is, it's interesting because it is still, and a small town is, is you know. A relative term because it's not sixteen thousand people but, um, or something like that. Chance is that right? Yeah, yeah.
1: sixteen to eighteen thousand, something like that. It's always weird because they've got a big population in their ETJ too. Well,
2: so. and they're right—they're right next to Austin. And the other thing I'd say is it surprisingly reminds me of a, of a Colorado like ski town for some reason. Like the pizza and the beer and the—it just—I don't know. I just got the same vibe of if you're in like a ski town in Colorado.
1: Yeah, it does, doesn't doesn't act doesn't act like a suburb very much. In fact, the joke there is that Austin is is viewed as largest suburb. So <laughs> I can I yeah. can I can see that's that. a good that's a good yeah idea. no I mean even we you know we brought in
0: um, uh, Monty as you as you know and and all three of us I, I think all of us said this is the first time I've been in a town of like 16,000 people where I could imagine actually living here you know um, I love the small towns I love going to them and, and staying in them but uh, it, it just felt like so much going on. The other thing I'll say about Buta that's that's interesting you can tell if a place is really well managed if the experience on the ground is much better than the impression that you get from looking at at Google Maps satellite images because I've become pretty adept at looking at, at the satellite images and saying this is what's here and Buta is one of the places that threw me off it's actually much a much better experience than the built the built form so to speak would would suggest if you look at it from from an aerial perspective so maybe um, i made
1: a mistake in telling them to stop worrying about what the aerial photo looks like well but but i mean but who who besides us would look like
0: would yeah. think about that right um in fact if you what of the what of the things i always talk about if you go to um have you been to savannah georgia yeah Okay. Have you seen the aerial images of the of Savannah? Georgia? If if I if you had a a planning student who was a grad student and submitted a plan for Savannah, Georgia, their professor would give them a D minus if they were lucky. They would go, "Really? You can't come up with more creativity than that," and they'd send them back because it's just a very you know, here's the grid. Here are the regular. In public spaces that we have at regular intervals, and that's it. If you're a human being walking around there, it's one of the most delightful experiences that that you you can have. I mean it's a wonderful, wonderful place, but the the aerial doesn't suggest that. So it's it's a reminder um that that the the planner's ego and and you know all the things that we learned in school. It's not that we didn't learn anything valuable in school, but but it's not really about that it's really about the human being who's there and if you're walking around in buda the way that most people who aren't uh who who haven't been to i i guess uh, close to 300 downtowns in texas would uh would look at it um it you would just say that this is a great place and and that it's it's a fantastic experience so um that's a testament to the fact that that everybody's it's got great leadership and that you and others um have done a, a wonderful job there so um on that on that note um i do we should probably um wrap this up soon so uh chance I, I will first of all thank you very much for taking the the time to uh to talk to us um what else uh, what would you like to leave us with what else would you have to add as a final thought
1: so I think final thoughts, I, I'll, I'll take off the Freezing and Nichols hat. And I'm going to put on the, the APA Texas president hat and, and and talk a little bit about, you know, what we're seeing with planners uh, in the midst of this crisis. Um, so what I, I've certainly told the membership and, and told employers here in Texas is uh, take care of, of yourselves and, and take care of your employees. Um a planner is not going to be able to be successful if they are worried about wh- whether their parents are healthy or, you know, what, what am I going to do with my kid for daycare or am I going to have a job? Um, that makes anybody much more ineffective. So you have to take care of yourselves. You, you have to take care of your own mental health. Um, this type of social distancing is not natural for humans. No matter how introverted you are, I'm, I'm a very introverted person. I am getting stir-crazy um, in, in this circumstance. But, uh, so taking care of yourselves has to be paramount, but also take this opportunity to talk about what planning can do, and and how we're making a difference. You know, the planners that are that are out there right now, they're the ones that are figuring out how to how to keep the wheels turning on development processes in a remote environment. You know, testing all kinds of new technology solutions. They're the ones that are figuring out how to make an online meeting of a city council work, um, and and still be uh, and, and still. Meet the needs of contact with citizens, um, and and participation. They're the ones that are that are studying what happened in the prior recessions, or in some cases, what happened in 1918, our last example of something like this, uh, and finding the lessons learned. They're the ones that are building these programs, like you've talked about in Buda, that of you know what does it take to create a good small business program. And, a, and make it successful and respond to the needs of, uh, of small business. You know, I contrast that with the, you know, what you've seen with the SBA programs. I would have loved to have seen that in a block grant format, uh, pushed down to the local level where local groups understand what the needs are on the ground, where they know these small business owners personally and know what their what their pain points are because it is not the same from place to place. Um, you know, a deferred forgivable loan is not the solution everywhere. A grant is not the solution everywhere. Um, rental assistance is not the solution everywhere. Um, I would have loved to have seen something like that but other things that you see planners doing we're adjusting transit programs we're the ones that are leading efforts like in Minneapolis where they are you know, systematically converting streets into these pedestrian places uh, and doing so really without apology um, they're adjusting transit systems uh, you know, you're know, you seeing like the, 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 the fee free system showing up now and, and that type of thing those are all efforts that involve planning intrinsically and it's an opportunity for us to show what we as a profession are capable of and what differentiates us and you heard me mention this earlier in the in the the discussion but um, our, our, our job is to be that 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 beacon of hope a little bit of to get with the community and get them to talk about what the vision for the future needs to be you know to not just focus on you know the line of cars at the at the food bank but to ask the community, well, what is your vision? What should this be like? And, and help find those solutions so that next time this happens, which it will happen again, we'll be more resilient and we'll be more thoughtful about our approaches and we'll be ready. Um, that's where I think planning can make a huge difference here. And uh, and really, there's, there's no better time to be doing that than right now Than doing your plans now Fixing the code, finding now. that vision, and future. finding that
0: vision for the future. Chance, always fantastic talking with you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being on our PlaceCast podcast, and um, we look forward, hopefully, to having, conversations having more conversations like this in, in, future. Like this in the future. All right, all fun. right, it's been
1: fun.
0: All right, thank you, Chance. Thanks.